0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we are marking 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we'll be discussing the resonance that period has with the current war in Ukraine. Also going to be discussing some updates on the uh, ongoing conflict in the Horn of Africa. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, it has become nearly impossible for me to watch or listen to State Department sponsored media these days as they report anything about the U.S. EU NATO proxy war in Ukraine. Of course, they don't call it that, but that's what it is. When I have to visit the doctor's office, CNN is on in the hospital lobby. I had to do vein mapping. MSNBC was on in the vascular surgery waiting room. I have to turn off my favorite radio station in the mornings on the drive to the dialysis center because I don't want to hear Amy Goodman spew State Department pro-imperialist talking points on democracy now. I have to not look at the billboard scroll on the NPR building that I pass every day because I don't want to see their anti-Russia, pro-fascist state Ukraine propaganda lit up in LED lights. Thankfully, I get to choose what I watch in the dialysis center while I'm going through my three and a half hour treatment after I have my training sessions because if I had to sit there and watch or listen to any of these outlets while I'm having my blood cleaned, I don't think I could take it. They might kick me out with all the hell I would raise about the lies the talking heads of the State Department sponsored media are telling people. Case in point, The way NPR reports on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis and how it's Russia's threats of nuclear war that are reminiscent of those bad old days of the Cold War and the terror of a nuclear war. Now, most of the article actually does a good job of dispelling many of the pro-U.S. and anti-Soviet mythology of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is it's surprising for NPR because they're definitely a mouthpiece for the liberal wing of imperialist thought. The article does point out that it was a Soviet submarine officer, Vasily Arkhipov, who talked his own commander down from firing nuclear-tipped missiles in response to the U.S. Navy's unwarranted provocation of depth charges against the submarine, thus saving the world from a nuclear war the first time. NPR also reveals in their article that it was not Kennedy's steely-eyed resolve that made Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev blink first and resolve the Cuban missile crisis. Rather, it was a secret deal the two made that pointed to the real provocateurs in the conflict, the United States, and their placement of missiles in Turkey, and who really saved the world from nuclear catastrophe. What we in the U.S. have been told about the Cuban Missile Crisis is that Khrushchev just randomly and for no reason other than to provoke war with the U.S. put missiles in Cuba, pointing at the United States. But the truth is that the U.S. had installed Jupiter missiles in Turkey, right on the border of the Soviet Union, and Khrushchev rightly saw this as a provocation from the United States. So he put missiles in Cuba to rebalance the power dynamic. For Kennedy's part in this, he was told by the Pentagon that the Jupiter missiles were obsolete and didn't really add anything to American security, which you and I know is utter hogwash. Who deploys obsolete, worthless missiles that are pointed at a country that is declared an enemy? Nobody. You and I know full well that the U.S. intended to use those missiles against the Soviet Union. Otherwise, why put them in Turkey at all and do it covertly at that? NPR accurately points out that Kennedy didn't want to keep the missiles in Turkey when he found out about them, but he also didn't want to be seen as backing down to Khrushchev, who was rightly demanding that those missiles be withdrawn. So Kennedy agreed to do that as long as that part of the deal remained secret. So here we have another Soviet, Nikita Khrushchev, who also saved the world from nuclear war. But the U.S. ego is so fragile that the megalomaniacs who created the Cuban Missile Crisis, it really should have been called the Turkish Missile Crisis, if you ask me, but they couldn't tell the truth about how it was resolved. Instead, they had to craft yet another one of their famous American myths to make the U.S. look like the good guys and prop up the enduring narrative of crazy Nikita Khrushchev and the unhinged Soviets and their nuclear threats to bury us. The NPR piece does such a good job dispelling so many long-held myths about the Cuban Missile Crisis that it was a jarring disappointment— But honestly, I should have expected the term because, you know, NPR being the liberal imperialists that they are. It was such a jarring disappointment that they ended the piece by using the very same Cold War crazy Soviet propaganda that was spun out of Kennedy not wanting to appear weak in meeting Khrushchev's demands. Toward the end of the piece, one of the authors that reveals some of the secrets that have been long held about who really ended the Cuban Missile Crisis, Max Hastings describes President Vladimir Putin as, quote, another reckless gambler in the Kremlin who again is openly threatening the world with nuclear consequences. That makes how we got out of the Missile Crisis in one piece terribly important. But from the history that has been revealed... It was never reckless gamblers in the Kremlin who created the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago. It was not reckless gamblers in the Kremlin who openly threatened the world with nuclear consequences then. And it is not reckless gamblers in the Kremlin who have created the threats of nuclear war that we're facing today. It was the actions of the United States in their provocation of the Soviet Union that brought the world to the brink of nuclear war in the 60s. And the same is true now with NATO officers and even the U.S. government's new favorite fascist Volodymyr Zelensky openly considering using nuclear attacks on Russia today. Whether the world is moved back from the precipice of nuclear Armageddon this time seems once again to hinge on the restraint of the Russians, just like the secret history of how the Cuban Missile Crisis was actually resolved reveals. Follow Luke Mann Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's Talking Points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Kevin Camps, radioactive waste watchdog at Beyond Nuclear. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Sean and Jackie. Absolutely. And Kevin, this month marks 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, from the original Cold War period, a very dangerous time where it seemed like uh, the world very well could be on the brink of open nuclear conflict. And I feel like it's relevant to uh, uh, raise this as people have been drawing a lot of comparisons between the period of the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, the current situation with, The war in Ukraine as we see uh, uh, talks of use of nuclear weapons happening both from uh, the U.S. and Russia. I mean, recently, a U.S. president, um, Joe Biden, talked about the possibility of a nuclear Armageddon before having to walk those comments back somewhat. And, you know, a Russian president, Vladimir Putin, as well, talking about Russia's uh, willingness to use those types of weapons out of uh, defense, uh, saying that uh, it's not a bluff. Uh, Personally, I tend to believe him, though it appears that the U.S. government and the the corporate press don't seem to take these sorts of things uh, terribly seriously. But I was hoping you could help us understand just what happened uh, 60 years ago during the Cuban missile crisis. And as an expert on these issues, I'm wondering, do you see any resonance with that and uh, the moment we're in right now vis-a-vis Ukraine?
3: Well, yes, indeed. I mean, I agree with many commentators who are comparing the the level of risk that we are facing right now to what we faced 60 years ago. Uh, It may be the most serious moment since then. And uh, boy, what happened 60 years ago, most Americans don't realize. And it took a long time for even, you know, officialdom to recognize how very close to all out nuclear war it came. And I'm reminded, I think I may have told this story on your show in the past, but a single individual Soviet submarine commander who voted no on the launch of a nuclear-tipped torpedo, I mean, what's said about him is he's the man who saved the world. His name is Arkhipov. He voted no on launching the nuclear torpedo from his sub during the Cuban Missile Crisis, despite the fact that U.S. warships were dropping depth charges near his submarine fleet there was one sub that was in serious trouble. Unfortunately, um, the air was restored before people died on that sub, but they didn't know that at the time. And yet he still voted no, do not fire. And it was a stroke of luck that he was in a commanding position to give that order and that he was respected enough among his men that the order was honored. And uh, that's how close we came to the first shot. Only it wasn't the first shot. The U.S. warships' depth charges were the first shot. But that nuclear tip torpedo going off, it was about the size of the Hiroshima bomb, 15,000 tons of dynamite, 15 kilotons, which would have wiped out whatever U.S. warships were in the area out to a distance. That would have been probably the first shot in an all-out nuclear war, to some extent anyway, between the U.S. and the USSR 60 years ago uh, this week.
1: And, you know, Kevin, so much of that uh, history about you know surrounding the Cuban Missile Crisis has been shrouded in both like secrecy and this um this mythos this mythology of the United States government and and uh, Kennedy in particular being you know very clear eyed and and forcing the Soviets down, but there's so much about what really led up to the Cuban Missile Crisis and the secret deal that was made to resolve it that I think speaks to the moment we're in right now in regard to how Russia is portrayed in this conflict rather than them being portrayed as responding to U.S. aggression. They're being portrayed as, you know, the reckless gamblers in the Kremlin bringing us to the brink of nuclear war. So I'm wondering if you can speak to sort of that secret history about the Cuban Missile Crisis, what actually started it and how it was resolved that I think does kind of reflect how we're still um, being inundated or indoctrinated with anti-Russia propaganda today.
3: Well, the context in 1962 was that the Soviet Union was deploying nuclear weaponry to Cuba. The US didn't know it, but then they found out through satellite imagery, through, I'm sorry, through uh, spy plane imagery, And so they knew that missiles were being deployed, that missile bases were being built on the Cuban mainland. What the U.S. government at the highest levels didn't even realize was that there were already nuclear weapons in Cuba. They thought that they caught it before they got there. What they also didn't know was that the Soviet commanders, even on land but also on the subs, had direct launch authority on their own uh, decision. They didn't have to check in with the Kremlin. That's how hair-trigger it all was, and the U.S. government didn't even realize it at the time. And like you said, the secret deal to resolve the situation. What could Kennedy give Khrushchev back that would make the situation resolved without war? And what it was was that very quietly, very secretly, pre-deployed U.S. nuclear weaponry in Turkey, a NATO ally would be withdrawn. And so it was a tit-for-tat, but it was so chaotic. And like I said, you know, with... uh, the Soviet submarine commander. Individuals making decisions made all the difference while Khrushchev and Kennedy and their teams were butting heads at the highest level. So that's how close it came. And a lot of this I learned, I went to a conference at American University. Dr. Peter Kuznick is the director of nuclear studies up there. It was strange timing in 2003, the Enola Gay, the U.S. warplane that dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima, was about to be unveiled at the Smithsonian at Dulles Airport outside of uh, D.C., very controversial glorification of that um, Hiroshima atomic bombing. And at the same time, a lot of documents were coming out, this was 2003, about the Cuban Missile Crisis that had never come out before, whether it was from Soviet archives or U.S. archives or Cuban archives. And so some of these stories about how close it came, um, the secret deals, one aspect of that submarine story was that McNamara, the U.S. defense secretary, was so outraged at the behavior of his own warships in the combat theater that he burst into a section of the Pentagon where only uniformed Navy are allowed to be admirals and such. He was in plain clothes. He was a civilian, but he ordered them to order their warships to cease and desist their provocative actions in the, in the theater, not even knowing yet how close it came.
0: Yeah. And I'm also wondering what you make, Kevin, of the awareness of the American people in terms of the nuclear threat of the moment. I mean, I tend to think that people are in this country are uh, generally uh, aware of that issue, but there just seems to be kind of a, a lack of alarm uh, uh, in a way, and I can't help but feel like that's based around uh, the way that uh, the war in Ukraine uh, has been framed. I mean, I remember uh, not that long ago uh, here in the U.S., there were you know people in the streets you know calling to uh, close the skies and. Uh, 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 you know, basically encouraging a no fly zone, which would have been a dangerous uh, escalation with, I think, some of these same uh, implications. And so, I mean, what do you make of how the American people have been sort of responding uh, uh, to this uh, latest moment? I mean, I know it's kind of a broad question, but I mean, I just feel like it's uh, noteworthy that there doesn't seem to be a general sense of uh, concern within the popular consciousness of the U.S. as it concerns them.
3: Well, I've seen polling of the American people and also international populations, and it's in the context of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Vast majorities of populations in most to all countries, uh, I'm talking 70%, 80% levels, want nuclear weapons to be abolished. And that's exactly what the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons calls for. It's the binding international law of the world. Unfortunately, the nuclear weapons powers have not. Uh, agreed to it, uh, are not abiding by its terms. And so that's where, you know, to solve this problem, we really just have to abolish nuclear weapons. Otherwise, it's a constant, you know, threat of global annihilation. And I'm taken back to the early 1980s when the day after tomorrow um, was shown on television. It was a fictionalized uh, nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia, Soviet Union, the viewership was something like over 100 million. It created quite a buzz in the country, and uh, there was also the rally in Central Park, where, by some estimates, 2.5 million people showed up to call for an end to the arms race and abolition of nuclear weapons. So it's hard to organize that level of societal involvement. Uh, I I work on it every day, but we're we're needing more people to be involved in this issue. So here we go again. But the the brightest hope I see is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It was honored with a Nobel Peace Prize in 2017, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, and the Hibakusha, the Survivors of Japan, were awarded the Nobel Peace prize in 2017 for this amazing accomplishment, but now we got to get more countries on it, including the U S and Russia and the others. I mean, between the U S and Russia, you have more than 90% of the nuclear weapons in the world. So wow. that's where the action is. And, you know, we keep dodging bullets over, you know, the past 60 years, the past 80 years, uh, how many bullets can we dodge?
0: And that's really the question, Kevin. That is really the question about you know at, at what point does our luck uh, uh, run out? Particularly as things are clearly escalating as it pertains to the war in Ukraine and uh, uh, the the threat of uh, a nuclear conflict becomes seems like it's uh, becoming uh, more and more of a, a potential reality. And uh, I'm also wondering. Well, number one, I want to say I agree that we definitely need a movement to you know be organizing around these things. In really be um, uh, ringing the alarm and really raising awareness uh, around this. But I'm curious your thoughts about The prospects of peace, you know, through this kind of diplomacy uh, uh, that you're suggesting. And I definitely tend to agree that that uh, seems like one of the more uh, promising routes uh, uh, to this. Of course, that becomes more difficult as uh, things escalate. But I I don't necessarily think that means it's impossible. So, uh, you know, how do you sort of analyze uh, the prospects for some kind of a peace negotiations as it pertains to the Ukraine war at this point?
3: I think nuclear weapons abolition, or at least control treaties, are a certain pathway. Um, You know, the Trump administration busied itself with tearing up treaties with Russia on nuclear weapons. There's very little left of the pre-Trump era. And so restoring those treaties would be an approach. I mean, there have been hopeful moments, even in the current Ukraine-Russia crisis. The grain treaty, for example, the agreement that grain can flow again— from Ukraine to the world to try to address this world food crisis that's been caused by this war. Um, so there's there's hope that, you know, um, the better angels of our nature will prevail. Treaties can be restored that have recently gone by the wayside um, during the Trump years. So that's my hope, is that diplomacy will um, prevail and that the war will end. I mean, that's the... The most um, important thing is that this war be ended for uh, both sides who are losing so many people.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the, the question uh, about diplomacy or the likelihood of the Biden administration in particular pushing diplomacy diplomacy to end this war and also to restore those treaties that were ripped up during the Trump administration. Do you see any positive movement uh, in that direction on both fronts from the Biden administration, um, especially as the, 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 the pipeline of money and weapons doesn't seem to be uh, slowing down? at all coming from Biden going to uh, Ukraine uh, still?
3: You know, another hopeful area I wanted to address that may get to the question there is involving the nuclear power plants in Ukraine. One was seized by the Russian military in the early days of the war, Zaporizhia, the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, with six reactors, but other reactor, other nuclear plants in Ukraine have been implicated in the fighting. South Ukraine nuclear power plant, um, a missile, a Russian missile, exploded nearby, just a thousand feet or less from the nuclear plant uh, in recent weeks. And the hope that I'm pointing at is the International Atomic Energy Agency, who we don't agree with very often because they're pro-nuclear power. Um, they have very much involved themselves in trying to avert a radioactive mega-catastrophe at one of these nuclear power plants, including sending a large team of 15 inspectors, including the IAEA director, to Zaporizhia in early September. They still have people there monitoring the situation. What they've called for is a demilitarized zone around nuclear power plants in Ukraine and by implication worldwide. So that's another hopeful area because, you know, the IAEA had to negotiate with the Russian government, with the Ukrainian government to even get themselves in there in the first place. So there is hope, um, but it's also a very high-risk situation right now. Even at the nuclear power plants, which have lost their grid connection for electricity numerous times, that's already flirting with disaster if the backup diesel generators fail or run out of fuel, or if an errant missile or an intentional shell hits the wrong place on the nuclear plant. Uh, Zelensky had it right when um, the shelling began around Zaporizhia that this isn't potential for a Chernobyl. That was one reactor that blew up in 1986. This is a potential for six reactors at Zaporizhia, and even worse, all the pools with the high-level radioactive waste there, which would really represent, if it all went up in flames, dozens of Chernobyl's worth of hazardous radioactivity, which would, of course, hurt Ukraine, but also Russia and other downwind countries.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we we'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back And today we're having updates on the ongoing conflict in the Horn of Africa. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Nebiyu Asfal, co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Nebu, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jackie, Sean. Absolutely. And it's good to have you, Nebu. And uh, here recently, uh, the head of the African Union, Musa Faki Mahamat, has called for a, quote, immediate, unconditional ceasefire uh, in the ongoing conflict between the uh, Ethiopian government forces and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front or the TPLF, uh, namely in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region. And uh, there's been sort of an ongoing discussion around uh, uh, peace talks led by the African Union and things like this. And so, uh, never you all, I was hoping we could begin by sort of uh, breaking down uh, just what's happening with this uh, call uh, for a ceasefire led by the African Union here, and how it factors into uh, uh, what's been happening here in this conflict.
4: Yeah, so um, we're... The situation on the ground uh, right now is is just for context. Um, There was a ceasefire that lasted for six months and the peace talks that was uh, being facilitated by the African Union um, and and Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government um, has been, you know, doing its due diligence and an earnest working towards the, the African Union peace negotiation or peace talks. But what had happened was um, throughout the whole time, the TPLF, uh, which is really uh, backed uh, covertly and uh, uh, backed by uh, Western powers, really refused to participate. Where well, They were just pulling their leg um, unless either the United States the European Union was part of the peace talks. You know, initially they demanded that the U.S. be the mediator when that was rejected, and then they uh, asked for them to be uh, an observer. Um, But after six months of, you know, push and pull, uh, the TPLF broke that ceasefire um, and um, stole 500,000 liters of uh, fuel from the U.N. and launched this third and latest uh, attack. Um, So... That's where we are in this this, uh, most recent uh, fighting has been going on for about four weeks now. And this time, what makes it different is that um, the Ethiopian government um, in the past has uh, not crossed into the Tigray border. They've always taken a defensive position, but this time they're, they're going into Tigray. In fact, several key towns within Tigray have been liberated from the TPLF and the capital of Tigray is not surrounded. So the Ethiopian government feels that the victory is at hand and that they're no longer bound by this Western pressure and that they're determined to finish off the TPLF, it appears. So um, the peace talks being called right now, I mean, Ethiopia never um, denied the peace talks. They're committed to peace talks. But at least three times in the past when ethiopia has agreed to a ceasefire and and you know came to the table for a negotiation the tplf has used that time and usually it's about 5 6 months they've used that time to rearm themselves um, to regroup and come back and attack. And that's exactly what they did now. So I don't think um, a ceasefire is likely at this point. I think the likelihood outcome is that the Ethiopian government is going to take over the
1: Tigray capital. And it seems that, uh, as they have done before, uh, forces from the neighboring Eritrea uh, have allied with uh, the Ethiopian government in this offensive. What does that mean for uh, neighboring regions? And do you think the uh, neighboring, other neighboring regions, there will be an expansion of support from neighboring regions uh, with the Ethiopian government in, uh, as you point out, uh, putting an end to the TPLF uh, for good. And and I wonder, you know, what this means for the uh, African Union's calls for another round of peace talks that were supposed to uh, happen in the coming months.
4: Yeah, um, so uh, as far as, um, you know, Eritrea assisting Ethiopia in this, uh, just to uh, remind everyone that Eritrea was dragged into this war because the TPLF was launching rockets into Eritrea. Um, the the Tigray People Liberation Front has um, <clears throat> an issue with the Eritrean government. They've they've had they've um, you know um, so so there's there's um, a, a reason on on why Eritrea is involved. But the only people that really have a problem with Eritrean's involvement is the West. The Ethiopian people understand and welcome the help. Um, and, and if, if if there is any expansion of conflict in the region, it would be an expansion by the TPLF because the TPLF sponsors uh, other, uh, it itself is a proxy, but it has other quote unquote liberation fronts in the Horn of Africa that it helps, um, those could destabilize the region. And, and there's also been allegations that there may be through a third hand connections with other groups like uh, in Somalia, like Al-Shabaab, those uh, rebel groups or terrorist groups can destabilize the region. But as far as states, national states um, getting involved in, in conflict, um, I don't see any, any possibility for that.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned uh, a moment ago, uh, Nebi, you about how, you know, given uh, the history and how the TPLF has been operating uh, uh, in terms of the issue of ceasefires and how, you know, you feel like it's not likely for them to uh, agree to such a thing now and how, you know, uh, Ethiopian and Eritrean forces may make their way to uh, uh, the Tigray capital. I mean, if that were to happen, I mean, uh, what are the implications in terms of what it means uh, for the region, what it means for the power of the TPLF, just uh, what, what kind of shift would that signal in this conflict, you think?
4: I think um, that, you know, um, once the, the capital of Tigray is surrounded, the TPLF would have one of two choices. And, and and one is to continue to fight and turn this into an urban warfare, which nobody wants. Uh, Makale is, is a, it's a metropolitan area and nobody wants war there. Or, or two, is is um, that's when the African Union peace talks comes in, and that, that's where they would negotiate their exile or, or surrender to the African Union and make some kind of arrangement, either for them to face justice or, or go into exile if the Ethiopian government is willing to give that kind of a concession. Uh, but that would be one way of bringing peace. I will tell you this much, that there is a, a, a transitional government that is being put in place in Ethiopia to uh, take over Tigray uh, from from Tigrayans and, and Ethiopia um, are are working on putting in a transitional um, a regional government, you know, uh, for the, um, uh, which will take over after the imminent fall of the TPLF. But I think that's that 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 the likelihood outcome would be that uh, the TPLF would you know agree to disarm. And, and and you know uh, either go into exile or or surrender and and that is something the African Union can negotiate and finally put an end to this two-year fiasco.
0: Yeah, and that brings me to another question, Nebu, because in thinking about this, I'm always curious about how this may ripple um, elsewhere uh, throughout the region of the Horn in terms of how uh, the governments say, of Somalia and Kenya or even Uganda or Sudan may be uh, sort of orienting or thinking about this whole conflict. I mean, what do we know about what other countries and other governments uh, uh, in the region um, sort of uh, think, or how they're sort of considering how this conflict has been playing out? Yeah, I think this conflict in the Horn of
4: Africa is is one that is going to be studied for years to come, because it's been very, very interesting, the level of involvement from from the West, Um, the level of pressure that has been put on Ethiopia through the form of sanction, and the level of aid and support this rebel group has been getting from the West, just really curious on why this has, this has happened. Um, but but what has demonstrated here is Ethiopia has demonstrated that it can resist uh, pressure from the West and it can overcome you know forces uh, regime change forces. By you know ensuring and 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 making sure that the people stand with it, and I will tell you this much: this really has triggered a pan African movement of African countries and Africans standing up with Ethiopia and with Eritrea, you know saying no more of this you know division and and sponsoring proxy wars to regime change in africa we've had we've seen it play out in Libya. We've seen this kind of stuff happen in Syria, Iraq, and other places. But, you know, this is what was going to happen in Ethiopia that was stopped. So, you know, whether it's Kenya, Somalia, the neighboring countries, most of the continent, all of the continent, they're uh, standing in solidarity with Ethiopia against the TPLF. And, and a proof of this, Sean, is that the UN uh, resolution vote they had a couple of weeks ago at the United Nations Security Council, every there was not there, out of all the countries that voted the african countries voted in blocks in favor of ethiopia a few of them abstained but not one voted with the west they all stood with ethiopia so that shows you where the heart of africa is at the moment
0: Yeah. And I also wanted to switch focus a little bit, uh, Nebu, uh, to um, uh, how people are organizing around this issue here in the United States, because, I mean, we've seen Ethiopians, Eritreans, Somalis and, you know, uh, a number of different communities. I mean, you know, black Americans included uh, sort of organizing and developing these uh, demonstrations to, you know, not only uh, uh, bring attention to what's happening in the horn, but to make demands uh, of the U.S. government uh, and its role in exacerbating those issues. And so from your perspective, I mean, how important is it that we continue to build and strengthen the movement uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world around uh, uh, this conflict uh, uh, in terms of uh, everything that's flowed from it?
4: Yeah, I I think, um, you know, this this war and conflict and the the U.S. intrusion into the horn of Africa perhaps was the the last straw that broke the camel's back that it has triggered a massive pan-African movement of, of, you know, the African immigrants diaspora, uh, all of the African diaspora, African-Americans in the U S Caribbeans, everybody is kind of standing up saying, you know, enough is enough, you know, no more. And, and, uh, In November, we're coming up to the one-year anniversary of that massive global protest we held um, last year, November 21st, in 34 cities simultaneously in the same day. Uh, Millions, um, and this are not just Africans, but, you know, pro-peace. Um, anti-imperialist, anti-neocolonialist uh, folks came out and said, hands off Ethiopia, hands off Eritrea, hands off Africa, enough is enough. And and at that point, we were on a potential brink of another U.S. Uh, military intervention um, because um, that's kind of what the talks was. There was a, re- a national resource being moved to uh, Djibouti next door to Ethiopia on the border. And, and the, the U.S. was threatening that they um, are going to send in um, some planes to evacuate U.S. citizens. I mean, it was basically a, a drumbeat for war, and that's when that big protest uh, came, came, came out, and and threatening the Ethiopian, and Eritrean regimes with military, with sanction, and, and and you know different method to to basically bring back the TPLF. A year has gone by, and the movement of, of the resistance has increased. To the point where um, you know some of the sanctions have been dropped or or, or paused, and that the media narrative that had taken over with lies has been debunked, and 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 thankfully, uh, part of the reason is that Ethiopian and Eritrean have a very large diaspora, active diaspora in the U.S. that has been behind this countering of the propaganda that has been going on on mainstream media. And then we've been very fortunate enough that there's been several independent medias that have really given us a voice or the platform to speak. Um, and that has been very helpful. And I think, I think this is uh, here to stay. Uh, but our unity, the Pan-African unity and working together has proved to be an invaluable asset that we all now cherish and, and will continue to um, you know, work on and build upon.
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Nebu, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining
5: us. Oh, always great to be back for another week. Thank you. Absolutely.
0: And Chris, uh, ProPublica recently published a piece talking about how uh, a Texas-based company is using software that actually helps landlords uh, increase prices uh, based on their uh, uh, algorithms. And so, I mean, it seems as though this technology is basically in place to increase rent uh, as the cost of living and other things continue to rise here in the United states and i was hoping you could tell us about uh, uh this company and how this uh technology works
5: yeah there is as you said this company called RealPage, um and they are basically using an algorithm to determine what what your rank should be uh We have a major housing crisis in the United States. People cannot afford continually rising rents, mortgage costs, and all of that. And, of course, all of these property values are driven by the market, right? Uh, And what RealPage does is it automates what an apartment should cost based on local property values as well as what others are charging. The problem with that is the more people who are using a service like this, uh, that encourages them to raise rents, sometimes as much as fourteen and a half percent, uh, the more the more Landlords who are using a service like this, the higher the rent is going to go, and so uh, you know everyone's median rent is actually going to be higher than it was before. And RealPage uh, and is really pushing to have this uh, to, to have landlords all across the country use this software. So we can see the problem when we also consider that there is a movement, you know, or there is movement in the housing industry. Where you have these major companies buying up housing and apartment buildings, uh, in order to, you know, either be a landlord or to flip the houses. So, in combination, these two things with this algorithm really, uh, are going to have a, a serious impact on working class people who need housing. We all need housing. Housing should be an absolute right. You know, it feels like, I mean, algorithms rule everything around us now, right? Like, whether you get a job, a loan, um, all of these kind of things, and now the cost of your housing, that basic human need that we all have and should have a right to, is also being uh, determined by an algorithm that you know we don't get to control. We don't get to see who you know what goes into this algorithm. We can get a vague sense of property values and competitive marketplace statistics and analysis, but we don't get to know what it is. They're also very interestingly telling uh, landlords, you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't be bargaining with your tenants. You shouldn't be saying, "Well, okay, I'll give you fifty bucks off if you want this." Instead, you should be keeping your prices. You know, you should actually have empty apartments rather than lose money on a month-to-month. Basis, um, which is just going to exacerbate the housing crisis, and you know, I, I mean, we see it all over the country. Certainly, uh, here in uh, I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, we see all of these fancy new apartment buildings being built up, and then you turns out, you know, a couple of years later, they're half empty because no one can afford them. You know, looking at two, three thousand dollars for a studio, uh, rather than building social housing, rather than building housing that actually benefits, you know, the people in the poorest neighborhoods who need good housing. So we could be using, you know, some sort of algorithm so to say to determine where do we need to be building, you know, safe affordable housing, but instead, these private companies are using these algorithms to say, well, you know what, we need to help landlords raise their rent and of course we will get a fee based on that. This is absolutely criminal that this company can even exist.
1: Yeah, and you know the origins of YieldStar are pretty nefarious. Just how the company uh, came about and who uh, created the algorithm and their problems with antitrust legislation and and law enforcement. So, wh- where did this YieldStar thing come from, Chris?
5: Yeah, there are a, a number of um, a number of issues around, particularly antitrust. Uh, with Yieldstar, you know, they've had many, many issues in the past historically. um, And really, the actually the Department of Justice has been involved uh, with others who have been involved with, with Yieldstar talking about um, a situation specifically with Jeffrey Roper and Alaska Airlines, where the DOJ basically said, "Like, there's a price war, um, and you are the airlines are uh, are colluding." So this isn't unique to housing, right? This is something that happens in many, many markets. The difference, of course, being that housing is a need that literally everyone has.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, I'm also curious about, you know, who's really sort of uh, uh, using this software? Like, how is a uh, yield star sort of uh, promoting itself uh, uh, to these uh, different elements? And I suppose these uh, landlords that, that are utilizing it, uh, as we're saying, during a, a very difficult time for housing in the U.S. right now.
5: Yeah, their biggest market is multifamily buildings. So we're Mm. talking, you know, five or more units, according to this ProPublica uh, report here, and that, again, according to this report, is 19 million of the of the U.S.'s 45 million rental units. So nearly half. Of the rental units. And so that's who they're targeting here. So, you know, large buildings, uh, not smaller landlords who have, you know, maybe a house with two, three, or four apartments in it. Um, So, a really significant number of people are affected by RealPage and this secretive algorithm uh, that, that they're using.
0: Yeah. And switching gears a little bit here, Chris, there's an interesting case, um, here in the state of Illinois where, uh, uh, there were some truck drivers that won a judgment in the first biometrics privacy class action suit, uh, to go to trial in the state of Illinois. And this was more than 45,000 truckers that won a $228 million judgment around this. And so, uh, uh, what was at issue here? Uh, with this case and, you know, uh, how are biometrics uh, playing into it?
5: Yeah, I love this. Uh, Illinois really led the way in 2008 with the Biometric Information Privacy Act, BIPA. And they said that people have to consent to giving a company, a private company, their biometric information. But BNSF Railway Company, it is now determined that they have violated Illinois law, the, the that same law by forcing truck drivers to check in with their fingerprints and not giving them another way, not allowing them to consent or withdraw their consent. Uh, It's 45,000 truck drivers. It's a $228 million court case that BNSF is very unhappy about because this is a lot of money. I mean, this is very significant. This trucking company, the railway company is um, is going to fight this. And I, th- I think it's going to end up likely, you know, it's going to take some time legally, but it's going to end up at the Supreme Court. And that's why I think this is so important to watch. This could be uh, really a test case on biometric privacy across the entire country. But the question is, do we have a right or not to consent to the use of our biometric information, facial, you know, patterns, thumbprints, things like that, uh, by private companies? This is something that Facebook has also been affected by, where they actually, as part of an investigation in Illinois, they turned off the default setting. Uh, uh, which used to be to apply facial recognition to pictures that you uploaded to try to tag your friends in them. You actually now have to consent to have being recognized in pictures that your friends uh, upload, um, rather than having it automatically tag you in those pictures, so that's been another outcome of this uh, of this law, the BIPA. So I really think it's a significant outcome um, in this case. But unfortunately, again, this is going to go eventually, I believe, to the Supreme Court. You know, this is a uh, BNSF is a large company; they do not want to pay hundreds of millions of dollars and. Ultimately, they also want to continue to violate the rights of tr- their truck drivers, uh, who you know took this action against them. So, I, you know, I think we really need to be watching this as it goes through various courts, as it goes up to the highest court in the land, and we know that the Supreme Court has not. In a friend to privacy rights. There are very few justices, if any, who have actually said that, you know, there is a right to privacy. Of course, there is the issue of Roe v. Wade, which was a, initially, the initial case was a right to privacy case. Um, But, you know, in other cases, this court has not, uh, not done well with privacy issues. And I think the current composition makes me even more nervous about it, which is why there has to be a, you know, a strong public reaction to any kind of attempt to violate our right to privacy.
1: Yeah, and I think this raises the question for me, Chris, about the implications of this lawsuit on the ways that law enforcement violates uh, citizens' privacy in the exact same way. You know, a corporation as big as B- BNSF has been able to get away with this for as long as it has, and it, now it seems like it's being punished for it. And you know, we'll have to see what the Supreme Court says about that. But how do? How can we use this case? to make a stronger case against law enforcement doing the exact same thing and getting away with it under the auspices of their enforcing the law.
5: Right. Well, certainly. I mean, let's remember, I think the most egregious uh, violation of this is actually, you know, a Fourth Amendment issue. And it's that Customs and Border Protection defines the U.S. border as anything 100 miles inland uh, from either a land border or a sea border. So that's the majority of people who live in this country. They also have an exception that lets them violate Fourth Amendment rights within that hundred miles, which means that they can force you to unlock your phone. Um, you know, at an airport, or you know, getting off a you know a train, or whatever it is, as you come into or try to leave the country, and this can cause you know serious privacy issues. Uh, at the you know at the best, it can delay you, and maybe you miss your plane or you miss you know whatever it is you're doing. But you know, it basically almost you know gives them carte blanche. And there have been lawsuits against it, and they've made some progress, but really, there's uh, still this this maintenance of this status quo where. Uh, CBP is able to do that within the border region, and uh, the ACLU has done some really fantastic writing and analysis of how that still maintains you know, its status as a violation of the Fourth Amendment. But, of course, this happens everywhere. Um, you know, as we see facial recognition being used, certainly Amazon's recognition software, but also you know, many others uh, you know, as law enforcement continue to use them uh, as ways around you know, the, pr- the protections that we are legally supposed to have uh, there, there needs to be a connection drawn, and I think you're absolutely right, Jackie. Thank you for bringing it up, between the fact that it is mostly private companies who are collecting this biometric data and then sharing it uh, with uh, you know, with law enforcement. So that's not the case, as, as far as we know, in this BNSF situation. That was, uh, as far as we know, it's purely internal. But then, you know, would BNSF uh, – collecting this uh, biometric information from their drivers? Would they then hand it over to the police in the case of a warrant? I mean, that's an open question that I think, you know, is not part of this case, but really needs to be considered as we have more and more companies collecting and scanning and, and storing all of this information on us.
0: Yeah. And speaking of uh, Illinois, Chris, uh, there was also this issue of uh, AT&T agreeing to pay a twenty three million dollar fine for what appears to be a political influence campaign uh, in the state of Illinois. And so tell us what's happening here.
5: Yeah. The uh, former speaker of the House uh, in Illinois, Michael Madigan. Well, it turns out that AT&T paid uh, a friend of his. They call it an ally. Uh, $22,500, uh, and basically it was an influence operation. Well, what is what did AT&T want with that $22,500? They wanted Madigan to uh, support a bill that canceled AT&T's obligation to make sure that residents of Illinois had affordable landline phone service. You know, I think for many people who live in, in metropolitan areas, you know, in cities, you know, you don't realize that not everywhere in the country has access to decent connectivity, phone service, you know, landline phone service, cellular phone service, cable, satellite Internet, anything like that. And Illinois uh, were forced AT&T via legislation to provide low-cost uh landline service to, you know, many, many people. Um, but this bill in 2017 undid that and at t wanted, you know, spent, uh, again, $22,500 at least, um, you know, influencing, uh, the speaker of the Illinois house who has since resigned. Um, the group citizens utility board in illinois and uh, they have a statement up at citizensutilityboard.org you can search their site for AT&T you know they actually explain um, what uh, you know what this means for consumers and they explicitly say that you can still get phone service from AT&T but the price has gone up. Um, and that was exactly what AT&T wanted here. They didn't want to have to provide affordable service to, you know, people in Illinois who had no other option. Uh, remember AT&T, you know, is effectively, you know, the product of, you know, the breakup but then re-merger of monopoly I mean, it is not the only phone company out there, but it is by far, you know, the, you know, the largest. And it also provides internet access. It provides uh a you know, it's got its own, uh, you know, online services and, and, you know, all of that. And so, you know, AT&T really is just, you know, spent a little bit of money effectively in order to make a whole lot of profit by raising prices on, you know, tens of thousands of Illinois residents who were using the cheaper plans in order to guarantee basic connectivity to the rest of the world.
1: And, you know, even though it seems like AT&T is being punished for their, you know, trying to influence politicians to pass legislation uh, so that they don't provide low-cost connectivity for uh, citizens, actually, under the agreement, the government isn't really punishing AT&T as long as they behave themselves. I mean, what does this mean still for people who don't have affordable Internet access?
5: For people who don't have affordable internet access or even just a phone line, it means pretty much nothing. They've actually uh, deferred a prosecution. So AT&T is going to pay $23 million uh, to the Illinois Crime Victims Fund uh, over the next 30 days. $23 million, you know, certainly it's is practically nothing for this giant, giant company. Um, and, you know, other than that, if the company, I believe it's over a two-year term, uh, you know, just goes by the agreement that they've made with the Justice Department, then there's no prosecution. There's no, no one is going to jail for this. No one, uh, no individual is being fined for this. The company is losing basically the equivalent of dropping a penny into your couch cushions for the rest of us.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio and Watch it, D.C. We'll be
2: right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
0: To by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lupman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to. Give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com radio Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We
0: most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Eugene Preyer, host of the Punch Out podcast on breakthrough news and author of the book Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Jackie, Sean, it is my pleasure to be back with you here you know, by any means necessary.
0: Well, the pleasure is all ours, Eugene. and. To kick things off, the u s President Joe Biden pledged today, from none other than the Howard theater right here in uh, washington d c that if the Democrats are able to retain control of the House and expand their majority in the Senate, that the first thing he would do, the first bill he would send to Congress next year, would be to codify abortion rights across this country, saying quote, "If you care about the right to choose." You got to vote. If Republicans get their way with the national band, it it won't matter where you live in America. Now, before we even get too much deeper into this, I just want to give a brief timeline of Joe Biden's um, public pronouncements as it pertains to the issue of abortion. Now, back in 2006, uh, there was a, a video that CNN resurfaced of a videotaped interview that Biden did with Texas Monthly. And in it, he said, quote, I do not view abortion as a choice and a right. I think it's always a tragedy. I think it should be rare and safe. I think we should be focusing on how to limit the number of abortions. And uh, Biden referred to himself as, quote, a little bit of an odd man out in my party because he wouldn't vote uh, to federally finance abortions, uh, had voted to limit late term abortions. But Supported Roe v. Wade, which, of course, guarantees uh, the legal right to abortion. Now, in 2019, while campaigning, and because you might say, well, Sean, you know, 2006, that's 16 years ago, a decade and a half plus one. A person's mind can change a lot during that time. Well, that's true. But let's see how this progression happened with Biden, who tweeted in 2019, quote, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, and we must fight any and all attempts to overturn it. As president, I will codify Roe into law and ensure this choice remains between a woman and her doctor. And then, of course, the draft decision leaked, I believe it was in May of this year. And we saw that initial round of protest. And about a month later in June, Biden tweeted, quote, we have to codify Roe versus Wade into law. If the filibuster gets in the way, we should provide an exception to the filibuster to deal with the Supreme Court decision. Now, New York Times reported earlier this month, quote, The Department of Education will issue a reminder to universities that they cannot discriminate against students on the basis of pregnancy, including if a pregnancy has been terminated. Additionally, the Department of Health and Human Services is announcing six million dollars in grants to expand access to family planning clinics that receive Title IX, excuse me, Title X of federal funding. The White House has asked Congress for an additional $400 million for the clinics. Now, that's all well and good. And I'll also uh, remind people that following the overturning of Roe v. Wade the Biden White House released, you know, a raft of non solutions and half measures that kind of made it seem like they were going to do something substantive about protecting abortion rights. But of course, they didn't. And and nowhere in in any of this mention is the fact that Biden uh, could make abortion legal in all 50 states through executive order. But like with a lot of things, he simply refuses to. And so for me, Eugene, this just feels like Another uh, bait and switch type of deal, a sort of clear ploy uh, for uh, Democratic votes as we draw ever near toward the uh, midterms here in this country. I think uh, his whole uh, marijuana piece and the student uh, loan debt forgiveness piece factors into this as well. And so just uh, generally wondering how you're considering uh, uh, Biden's uh, announcements here, given the uh, other uh, political dynamics happening inside the country.
6: Well, you know, I think towards the end there, you really hit the nail on the head, Sean, that, you know, right here in the last couple of weeks before the election, the Democrats are doing everything they possibly can do to try to juice turnout for the midterm elections, because what you can see from the polling is that the elections have become very, very tight. And, you know, after the Dobbs decision uh, by the Supreme Court, the Democrats had a big surge, really, in terms of polling. Well, big is maybe a little bit too much. But nevertheless, they had had a surge and seemed to be relatively clearly in the lead. Um, and it seems to some degree some of that moment momentum has faded. I think a lot of that also has to do with the context of the, uh, the continued inflation crisis and the fact that the Democrats had absolutely zero program to address the significant economic issues that are are facing working class people in this country. And so they're just, you know, throwing things at the wall. But I mean, I thought Biden's statement is really an amazing statement. I mean, first and foremost, the Democrats have the majority in both houses and the White House right now. And if they wanted to amend the filibuster in order to pass the Women's Health Protection Act and legalize in a codified way abortion in all 50 states, they could, in fact, do that. They could, in fact, do it right now, and it would not require any election. So the idea that you have to vote in order to get that is, quite frankly, just an election ploy, without a doubt. And, you know, the thing is is that there's, these rules are all so ridiculous that no one really knows how any of it works. But basically what they could do as the Democrats right now is just do something that's called the nuclear option, which is change the uh, issue on overcoming a filibuster to 51 votes, or, uh, and they could then have enough people, um, almost certainly have enough people to vote in favor of the Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, from my point of view, I mean, it's pretty close, but it could, be, it could be done. But putting that aside that they could do it right now, even if the Democrats do indeed vote, and this speaks to the point you're making about Joe Biden, do indeed win and keep both houses, it still is not a foregone conclusion because if they were going to do it as a foregone conclusion, it would have happened by now. But whether we're talking about uh, you know current people who are known as quote-unquote conservative Democrats or whether we're talking about Joe Biden himself, the Democrats as a party have not actually taken measures to do this, Specifically, because they want to appeal to anti-abortion forces. When Roe v. Wade was in effect, you had the the sort of feeling that okay, well, abortion is legal. You know, it's it's there's not that much that that the right wing can really do about that. The Supreme Court will never rule against it. That was essentially the the thought process amongst the Democratic high command. So the idea politically was that then you could have people like the Joe Bidens of the world, and you know others, of course, through the years, Democrats who have been uh, who are against abortion. I was of them now than there used to be in even 2006, but nevertheless, there are still some, uh, that they could then essentially uh, straddle the line by saying, we're going to support the right to abortion, we're going to support Roe v. Wade, but we're not going to go any further in terms of national legislation, so that way we can present two faces. We can say we support a woman's right to choose by demagoguing around Roe v. Wade, but we also can welcome anti-abortion forces into the party by saying, well, it's your choice between a woman and a doctor and whatever is in your private consciousness, you can still vote for a Democrat. And the Democrats are not going to actually take steps to codify these beliefs in a way that you would not agree with. So more or less, you know, it was a watered down version of the Republican state's right strategy for abortion that, you know, sort of more or less within the framework of Roe v. Wade accepted that different states were going to have different standards and some would be so restrictive as to be de facto bans on abortion. But it was an attempt to have their cake and eat it, too, and now it's coming back to bite them. And I think ultimately they're trying to create a false image of, A, that they can't do anything now, which is false. They could amend the filibuster and pass the Women's Health Protection Act. There are enough individuals who are on record and supporting it in the Democratic Party that with a simple majority they could do it. But the other element of it, too, is if, even if the Republicans were to win all the Senate seats that are up this year, they would not, in fact, have a veto-proof majority inside of Congress, which means that Joe Biden could actually veto the national abortion ban, and the Republicans would not be able to override said veto. So uh, it's not that people shouldn't be concerned about a national abortion ban. And it certainly is not to absolve the Republicans. But from the point of view of the actual procedural realities, it would be very difficult for them to do the same thing. So all the power is in the hands of the Democrats, but they refuse to use it. They're demagoguing around what the Republicans would be able to do in order to get people to show up to vote. And at the end of the day, they are really trying to cover up for their own failures and also, I think, get people out to vote. So that's my general feel about what's happening now. The marijuana piece, which is mainly hollow and empty, although it does have some good elements to it. The fact that they're going to move on the issue of, of scheduling, descheduling marijuana um, is probably the biggest part of that and I think would make a big difference for sure in terms of how the issue is addressed um, and the various state levels and different things like that. But by and large, it's like how can they load on as many relatively minor or cosmetic methods? Probably the biggest thing they've done is the student loans, and even that has a lot of loopholes in it. But you know, how can they add up enough things to get people to feel like the difference between the two parties is so substantive? they should show up and vote when typically Democrats struggle to get out voters in non-presidential years uh, for a range of reasons. So a lot of it feels hollow, rhetorical, and it certainly all feels misleading and based on a lot of false pretenses.
1: And you know what, Eugene, I have the feeling that because of where Biden made this announcement uh, in regard to uh, federal abortion legislation and the need to vote at the Howard Theater, historic Howard Theater uh, in Washington, D.C., L- like at literally the historic center of black culture and entertainment in this city, if not, you know, outside of uh, of maybe New York City uh, on the east coast of this country. I feel like that's just kind of an indication of how the Democratic Party is going to play these midterm elections. And I feel like this is once again, the Democrats kind of setting up the, the fall guy for when and if or if and when they they lose so many seats in the midterms, they're just going to blame black folks for not voting for them and their great vision. I, I don't know. Are you getting that feeling, too, from the fact that he made this announcement announcement At Howard Theater, because I don't think, you know, that these kinds of things are done or scheduled, um, you know, just happenstance. I think it was clearly a calculated move to make this announcement there. And I'm wondering if you're getting the same kind of vibes from it. No,
6: I think that is a great point, Jackie, and I definitely agree with you. I think it's, you know, you're 100 percent right. Nothing that is done at that level is done by accident. Everything's parsed over million times for every possible meeting. So even if it doesn't come across, they were trying to get something across. And if you do anything at the Howard Theater, you're obviously trying to set it up. And, and I think it's, it's a especially a good point because we know that Biden has basically kind of made his stock in trade since 2020, that, well, he's the candidate of the black community, that the only reason that, you know, we've got Biden better than Bernie Sanders, because uh, and I think it was Joy Ann Reed or somebody said that the black leadership supports him and uh, he can rally black voters in an unprecedented way. Uh, now, despite a lot of that just being completely ridiculous from a number of different points, it's obvious that like Biden's own presentation over the past couple of years has been very much around centering his sort of leadership, if you will, if you can even call it that, uh, of the Democratic Party around this idea that he's going to put at the core the interest of black voters, and that at the core of the Democratic success is black voters. And that's certainly the sort of, you know, line he used to defeat Bernie Sanders, uh, most notably in the context of the elections. And so I suspect if they lose, every article, I agree with you 100 percent, Jackie, will be about how turnout was lower amongst black people, and that will end up becoming the sort of discourse. I mean, you can already see that a little bit and kind of in a way from people who I think are trying to do the opposite, to not blame black people. But you can see a little bit in the gubernatorial election in Georgia right now where Stacey Abrams is not doing that well, I think for a lot of different reasons. But the discourse around why she's not doing well is that she can't connect with black men um, and that black men will not come out to vote for Stacey Abrams and that if she loses, it's because either A, black men are, are terrible people or B, she can't do enough black men. And, you know, whatever the sort of specifics of that, I think you can just see that kind of, of pivot point becoming a bigger and bigger talking point on a national level where it'll be, well, in, Ohio, in this state or in that state, you know, fewer black people came out to vote in this election or that election. And it'll be presented, I think, on both sides. It'll be presented by people saying, oh, they didn't do enough, which is true. Um, or people saying, oh, they, you know, the, the black people themselves were terrible. But ultimately, it really kind of absorbs all other elements of the population from any sort of role. And it's like, you know, it's in a way, good to have black issues centered, but only if it's being centered in a way that's actually realistic, um, as opposed to, you know, some other uh, uh, modalities. So, yeah, I think this is definitely loading up for it to be a black people didn't show up enough on election day kind of election. And there was a of that in 2016, of course, because of the Russiagate thing becoming so uh, overarching. But there was some of that, I think, in the context of 2016 as well. And it's sort of the weird flip side of the coin around this sort of fake appeal to black America that is happening in the context of, uh, in the context of Democrats trying to appear like they're appealing to black voters is that then when they don't win, it's like, Oh, well, wait a second. It's because these black people didn't care enough about us.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that leads me to a question that, that, that I got to ask, uh, Eugene in terms of, I guess the, the, the way that black men are considered, in popular politics in the United States, because and I feel like your uh, 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 comment sort of alluded to this. It seems that that we're almost sort of uh, universally painted, as, you know, as an aggregate, as, you know, poisonous or as a generally uh, a reactionary element or somehow uh, harmful to uh, the plight of, I, I don't know, maybe black people in general. I mean, it just seems like there's a real kind of stigma and like tacit, almost demonization that we see uh, uh, of black men in that way. And I feel like uh, the situation you, that you uh, 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 just sort of discussed in uh, uh, terms of uh, Stacey Abrams it is one example of that and you know I mean I really appreciate it because I was just thinking about this um Piece uh, that was published in People's uh, Dispatch, where they uh, interviewed Philip Agnew about uh, uh, organizing uh, black men uh, from a real sort of place. But I don't know. It just seems that uh, uh, there's this weird tendency uh, to pay short shrift uh, to black men in the mainstream American political consciousness. And this is super broad, but I'm just wondering, like, how you see that and why you think that is.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's a a good question. I mean, you know, from my point of view, I think it's really not new. Um, It's just the newest permutation of a long-term attempt going back to slavery of, you know, one just fear of, of, you know, black insurgency. And given that we live in a deeply patriarchal society, you know, sort of insurgency, militancy, vibrancy, um, you know, combat capacity, if you will, is thought to be sort of exclusively the preserve of men. Now, that, of course, is false, but nevertheless, it's the perception. And I think when you put those two things together, you've always had this sort of very potent attempt. Like during slavery, it was all about the Sambo myth and making black men, you know, essentially trying to, again, I guess I'm playing into what I just said a little bit, but emasculate them in the context of, you know, black people are lazy, they're this, they're that. Um, Then you have the sort of post-war era where it turns into the post-Civil War era, uh, you know, the sort of violent criminal trope, which has continued sort of up on until today. I mean, you have sort of the civil rights movement and a couple other pieces that started to bring in slightly different cultural representations, but that at the end of the day, we're not able to sort of carry the day in terms of the targeting of black men to create this sort of, you know, perception of dangerousness. And I think that that, the reason behind it, from my point of view, is that perception of dangerousness is really the heart of the repressive policies, whether we're talking about mass incarceration, militarized policing, um, quite frankly, even the, the worst of black, the Black community to receive social goods and public services. You know, it's all centered around the idea that it's a bunch of violent criminals Um, who don't deserve anything, and who are living this kind of degenerated lifestyle. And I think that despite the fact that we've seen significantly more activism coming out of the Black community in relationship to the Ferguson era and on, you know, the so-called movement for Black lives, the sort of backlash to that in and of itself has sort of given new rise to these sorts of levels of demonization, again, as part and parcel of helping to create sort of the ideological atmosphere for a counterinsurgency type approach, to the black community and certainly to the excuse me and certainly to the, the more radical and revolutionary elements of it, which I think are are certainly obvious and clear when you look at the issue of how many uprisings and things that have been going on. So I think that there's a growing challenge in that many of the people, and this is what I was speaking to before, who are trying to raise this issue of how sort of the issues of black men are are being you know sidelined or whatever, or demagogued around or there's only demonization. I think are also creating sort of a, a, a negative sort of feedback loop because they're not really presenting much of a program for what any of this really means. And so then it just becomes a, a, a topic of political fodder for the various politicians and celebrities like Charlemagne God or whatever to talk about. But there's no real conversation about the structural realities that are affecting black men, how that's deeply tied into the policies of the state and how that then plays itself out in an ideological way in the news and in entertainment to sort of reinforce the negativity of these policies. So I think it's a sign of really the state of the chaos of the discourse uh, around Black America in general, but certainly around Black men. Absolutely.
0: Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back, so please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 025211320. That's 2-025211320. Myself and Jackie Luqman continue to be joined by Eugene Pergier. And Eugene, switching gears in our focus here a little bit, uh, turning our eyes toward the country of Haiti. uh, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez has called for armed action In Haiti, uh, saying that there's a, quote, nightmarish situation happening in the country, especially Port-au-Prince, the capital city. He said, quote, I believe that we need not only to strengthen the Haitian police, strengthening it with training, with equipment, with a number of other measures, but that in the present circumstances, we need an armed action to release the port and to allow for a humani- humanitarian corridor to be established. And, of course, this uh, follows from uh, uh, the recent delivery from the U.S. and Canada of uh, uh, different security equipment, including, you know, these tactical and armored vehicles and things like that. And, of course, this all follows from uh, 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 calls for uh, foreign intervention by a uh, Haitian de facto prime minister, Dr. Ariel Henri, who's, you know, Only legitimacy is given uh, by the support that he gets from the U.S. and the West. And Eugene, you know, we've been following this whole uh, situation in Haiti quite closely, not just over the last uh, uh, few weeks, but, you know, I would say, you know, over the last uh, couple of years at least. And I know that you all at Breakthrough had the opportunity to be on the ground uh, during some of those protest, uh, calling for uh, uh, the resignation then of, uh, you know, sort of the puppet president Jovenel Moise. Of course, that was before he was assassinated. And so I really have Two questions, Eugene, or really a two part question. I mean, number one, not only sort of your top line thoughts about how this is unfolding and how it it does feel like we are headed toward uh, yet another uh, foreign intervention inside Haiti. But why at this juncture, the U.S. and the West are still so hell bent on controlling uh, uh, the situation, the politics of Haiti and what's happening there?
5: Well,
6: great question, great two-part question, and I really appreciate even necessary for being very consistent on covering in Haiti even when the mainstream media is, is looking in the other direction, which is almost always. Uh, you know, I think to start with the second part of the question, I think, you know, the reason why they are so hell-bent on taking action is that what we've seen since 2018, actually, in Haiti has been a interior collapse, if you will, of the governing system – that has been set up for a neo-colonial type of situation in, in Haiti. I mean, Haiti as a country is, you know, actually barely richly endowed in human and natural resources, but the proceeds of those resources never filter down to the Haitian people. They filter primarily to a very small group of elites inside of Haiti, but even more than that, the big multinationals in the U.S. and Europe and Canada and in other parts of the world, quite frankly, that has essentially just just bought up Haiti and exploited it terribly on a regular basis. And to maintain that status quo, which of course has been deeply oppressive for the Haitian people, extreme poverty in Haiti, extreme hunger in Haiti. As we know right now, a big cholera outbreak, not the first one, pretty consistent. 80% of the schools in Haiti are privatized. The healthcare system is almost totally privatized. And if it wasn't for Cuban doctors, there would be very little health care at all uh, in the country of Haiti. And we could go on and on. So it's it's obviously a terrible state of affairs for the Haitian people. Massive land grabs. One of the things we saw when we were there, for instance, was, you know, significant land grabs happening on behalf of big agribusiness to take over huge slots uh, of land to do deals with companies like Coca-Cola and others um, for the ingredients that they used to make coke sweet. So, you know, the sort of system that had been established to maintain that was this this elite led system. Where you had multiple centers of power, so like no one person or group was too strong. You know, competing for the favor of the, especially the quote-unquote core group countries—the countries in the U. and North America and Europe that have the most influence in Haiti—but also some other you know forces like the OAS. Um, that you know these various forces are kind of vying for influence with these very powerful actors, who then essentially oversee that kind of Game of Thrones reality, and just sort of whoever can set up the most logical governing coalition, out of that, you know, gets the gets the iron throne and gets the the okay of the, the core group countries to keep moving forward. But starting in 2018, you started to have some major eruptions based on mass protests that started happening because there was something called petro Carib for many years. It was shut down because of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela that basically gave a lot of money to Caribbean countries from Venezuelan oil sales. So Haiti was one of those countries, but like 15, maybe as much as $20 billion of that money was stolen by Haitian elites who don't care about their own people. So people started protesting. Um, at that time, they were called Petro-challengers. People started protesting um, and they were huge. And they were really challenging the then-President Jovenel Moïse, like, what is happening? And really the whole overall Haitian elite sort of raising the same question of like, how, like, how like would, how did this money just go missing? What did you do with it? Where did it go? From 2018 on, this cycle of protests became so intense that the erosion of any actor affiliated with the government, the ruling party, people associated with it, started to be hollowed out significantly. And fast-forwarding to where we are today, you're in a situation where the so-called Prime Minister Ariel Henry, and it's important to remember, that not only was he never elected, basically the way, the way he's Prime Minister is 10 people— In the Haitian Senate, which had actually already been dissolved for over a year at that point, uh, got together, said he's the prime minister, and the U.S. government called the guy who was second in command after Jovenel Moise was assassinated in 2021 and basically said, Ariel Henry is going to be the leader, and you have to be the leader. And that's not just me saying that. The New York Times said that. That only reason he's there, the U.S. put heavy pressure to put him there. So the epitome of unelected, unaccountable, anti-democratic leadership there. But he has no support, basically. That's the point I'm making by saying that, um, except a tiny little sliver of elites. You've got multiple different elites, some who claim to be supporting the protests, some who are trying to mobilize their own political parties, deeply divided. You have this huge mass movement that is existing that is not letting up four straight weeks of protest so far, and that is, is to some degree, holding the fire, the, the fire to the feet of these elite-type forces. So the type of situation you might have, like after the coup in 2004, when the U.S. kidnapped then-Haitian the president, who was democratically elected, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, um, and took him out of the country, they were able to put together another coalition by uniting 200 of these elite figures. But they haven't been able to put something together like that now. There's, It's almost like breaking a thermometer, you know, and you put the mercury there, and you can never actually put it back together. That's the situation that you have. The situation there is broken. The neo-colonial status quo is broken. The masses of people are refusing to accept this kind of thing going on forward. And the individuals who are—and I'm going to get to the invasion here, but I want to give this context—the individuals who are in positions of power are so at odds with one another, they can't even, under imperialist patronage and tutelage, come up with uh, any form of governing structure that's significant enough for them to back. So I say all that just to say. That is the context for what we see with the U.N. resolution authored by the United States and Mexico to authorize a non-U.N., that's interesting, multilateral security force to go into the country. Because for sometimes the imperialist forces and the core group forces, and sadly many other countries in the world who are not imperialist, like China, um, but they've been going along with it, so it just has to be said, they've been trying to force a rapprochement between Ariel Henry and the forces support supporting him, the limited forces supporting him, and something called the Montana Accord, which is a group of 200 organizations, church organizations, voodoo organizations, political organizations, and some the left organizations as well. It contains a lot of Haitian elites, but it also contains elements of the mass movement, religious, civil society as well. Um, so it's considered to be more representative than Henry. And there is an attempt by the West, especially, to create a stitch-up between these two sides. But the difference is, is, Ariel Henry wants to keep all power to himself, so he doesn't want to make a deal with anybody. The Montana Accord, they have their own plan, and it doesn't include Ariel Henry. And their legitimacy is 100% based on seeming representatives of this oppositional current in Haiti, which limits their ability to cut deals with either Henry or the West. So they couldn't get the right thing together. So in that kind of vacuum, The forces in the United States, which includes the Washington Post editorial board and the warmongers behind them, the forces in the region, which includes prominently the president and the elite leadership of the Dominican Republic um, and other countries who have been pushing for over six or seven months now, really over a year, for there to be an intervention have sort of surged to the forefront. And in the lack of a real political solution on the ground, they have essentially been able to assert the idea of an intervention and occupation as the best possible way to maintain the control of Haiti that will make it continue as a, you know, number one destination for people looking for super low wage labor uh, or, you know, very cheap to get uh, and expensive to sell natural or agricultural resources. And so that's what's basically led us to this point. And of course, the issue of quote unquote security is being totally demagogued to establish this You know, these so-called gangs, which even to call them gangs is not correct. These are basically non-state armed actors, but even to call them non-state is not 100% correct. These so-called gangs are deeply enmeshed with the elites of Haiti and the state structures. Uh, Many of them are cops or former cops, for instance. Uh, uh, Barbecue, Jimmy Sherry Zay, who's the one who's become the most well-known uh, internationally, you know, as a former cop, but it's not, I'm not trying to single them out. A bunch of them are. You have Phantom 509, some of these other gang groups, they're all former cops. And all of them are tied in. You know, just a couple of days ago, you mentioned the issue of the armored cars. Well, some of those same types of armored cars actually just got stolen from the police by one of these gangs in Haiti and the thing that was notable about it that La Nouvelle East, which is sort of like the New York Times of Haiti was promoting is that this so-called gang actually works with the police in other neighborhoods in the context of their you know so-called anti-gang activities. So really what you have is these are paramilitaries that are part of the power game of Haitian elites for you know positioning themselves in this sort of broader, you know, as I described it previously, game of thrones type struggle for who's going to be the neo-colonial leader of Haiti. So I think that's what brought us there. I think that's the context. But what we know is whether it's 2004, whether it was 1991, excuse me, 1993, uh, whether it was 1915, every single one of these occupations by Haiti has only made the situation in the country significantly worse, and it's only deepened the control of the country by interests who are non-Haitian uh, to exploit the, the people in the land.
1: And, you know, there are so many aspects to uh, you know, what you just explained leading up to this current moment in Haiti, that the the uprisings by the people in Haiti have also been just, I, I think, just as multifaceted, because not only are people, you know, taking to the streets, protesting possible, another possible foreign intervention in the country, they're also protesting the rise in fuel pra- uh, uh, prices, the collapse of the petro uh, Carib program, but they're also doing things Things like expropriating uh, grain that was being stored in some, I think, UN uh, warehouses and, uh, you know, the moving against offices of these non-governmental organizations. Can you kind of give a context of what that part of of the fight back means, what are people, you know, why are people in Haiti uh, uh, targeting uh, these NGO offices? What's the role of NGOs and, and the UN and and the, the way they basically control uh, so-called relief aid in Haiti? And why is that so important that uh, Haitian people are making those issues a part of their struggle?
6: Man, thank you so much for asking that, Jackie. I think that's, I mean, it hits so much to the point of why Haiti is in the problem situation that it is now. I forget who coined the phrase, and I'm sorry, I can't. I'd like to give them credit. But, you know, many people actually call Haiti the Republic of NGOs. And anyone who's ever been to Haiti, anyone who's ever worked in Haiti, you know exactly, that, I'm sure, rings quite a bell because there's 85 million foundations that are working in Haiti. And I think the easiest way for people to really sort of encapsulate why people are targeting this is for those of us who are old enough to remember, if you can remember the earthquake in 2010 and just remember the huge flood of ads that were all over TV, donate to the Red Cross, donate to these people, donate to those people, and it was like billions of dollars raised for Haiti. None of that money went anywhere for Haitian. I mean, I was pretty stunned when I showed up in Haiti last year, and I'm just thinking, like, where did all that money go? I mean, there's, there's really, like, no evidence. That, and you see all these buildings all the time that are, like, half-constructed. And people say, oh, yeah, 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 you know, it kind of went. It got messed up in the, in the um, earthquake, and nothing ever happened. And it's like, well, wait a second, what is all this money for? And there was actually a study done by Chuck Schumer of all People um, about the Red Cross effort. I wish I could remember the exact number, but it was like the Red Cross built, like, 20 houses or something like that with the hundreds of millions of dollars they are supposed to spend. So since 1999-ish, really since the second Aristide administration, which is like ninety nine to two thousand four when he was crewed out. The strategy of US aid and not just the US, many others, has mainly been to try to reduce state capacity of Haiti and to only funnel any aid or resources to sort of US especially um, but Western approved NGOs and aid organizations that work sort of in conjunction with their own quote unquote local partners. And it does a couple of things. I mean it one totally prevents there from being any form of of state capacity being built up in the country, which makes it harder for Haiti to get back up on its feet. Even if they were to have their own sort of self-determining government come into power, they would be, you know, really behind the eight ball. And that was actually deliberately a part of it to weaken the Air administration by not giving them state capacity. And it's worked the same way. And the other thing that it does is it then parcels out another form of power centers for, you know, whoever can found an NGO... Get the NGO like in the game with the State Department and other places. Then you're going to get a bunch of money sent directly to you, and there's like basically no oversight for USAID and these other uh, entities, which means that you can just be as corrupt as you want to be, and no one's ever going to ask you any questions. And so I think the Haitian people are revealing to us that a lot of these NGOs are basically fake. A lot of them are mafias. You know, like they'll be hoarding food, hoarding gas, all these different sorts of things. And they certainly, more or less, even you know, to the extent that they're not like 100% corrupt, are at least indicative of the fact that the, the existence of Haitian people has basically been turned into to, uh, uh, hustlers on the one hand and handouts on the other. It's like there's no real collective way or attempt to help people empower themselves, develop their country, build up jobs. It's just whatever way you can hustle in the informal sector and whatever handout you can get from an NGO. And so it's a sign of the disempowerment of the Haitian people. And I think people in Haiti are very, very well aware of that, that this sort of Republic of NGOs mentality is part of the broader strategy that's used to keep them down, and that this is a major vector for the corruption that happens in Haiti, which happens definitely through the government. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of it does happen very much through this sort of Starving the government of resources and sending them only to these highly unaccountable NGOs. So I think it's a very revealing aspect of what's happening right now to see people starting to target some of these organizations because it really does, I think, open up how this—it's really insidious—the the various efforts that are worked through to keep Haiti down, including most of the things that people think are doing a good job. Uh, and it's sad because it's playing on the heartstrings of a lot of people who are like, yes, I want to help people in Haiti. But in reality, uh, it's part of the deeper strategy to destabilize the country and keep it
0: weak. Absolutely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us my dear friends phone lines are still open 202-521-1320 that's two Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lukman is here. Eugene Year is here. As we continue, and uh, staying with the uh, international peace here, Eugene, and how the United States is uh, sort of orienting towards uh, different uh, international developments here recently. Uh, Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, accused China of uh, basically speeding up its plans to, you know, in their mind, you know, seize, take over, and. Invade Taiwan. Um, of course, this follows after. Well, I mean, I, I believe actually the still ongoing uh, 20th Congress of the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party, where the West almost always collectively has a conniption fit over what uh, Xi Jinping uh, says and does. Uh, he was uh, blinking. That is was talking to an event at Stanford University earlier this week where he said, quote, there has been a change in the approach from Beijing to For Taiwan in recent years, which, according to him, includes, quote, a fundamental decision that the status quo was no longer acceptable and that Beijing was determined to pursue reunification on a much faster timeline, which uh, in the prospect of that, he says, is, quote, creating tremendous tensions. And so, you know, in considering this, Eugene, particularly. Um, within the context of the the escalating war in Ukraine and the parallels that I think that uh, uh, we could point to in terms of how the U.S. uh, uh, is clearly intent on violating if not just you know completely discarding uh, the one china policy where washington acknowledges that there is but one china and taiwan is a part of it and not just these words from anthony blinken but of course this succession of uh, delegations uh, of us officials that uh, have gone to taiwan recently kicked off by nancy pelosi and the biden white house played this whole uh, charade like they were somehow you know doing that without the express blessing of Uh, The White House, which of course is absurd. But I mean, given these uh, same dynamics, uh, 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 Eugene, I'm just wondering how you see it because, I mean, uh, as we've been just sort of pointing out on the show, I mean, this new Cold War era that we're in, Washington uh, seems like it wants to move as quickly as possible to a hot war, a hot nuclear war at that, both uh, with Russia and China, something that, of course, would have a a devastating impact. For uh, humanity itself, but out of just this desperate attempt at maintaining world hegemony, uh, uh, the U.S. seems, you know, more than willing to sacrifice the rest of us for that control.
6: Yeah, I mean, wow, what a what a bleak state of affairs. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the fact that we're staring down the barrel of nuclear war, you know, planet destroying climate change ever-increasing poverty, a massive cost-of-living crisis, which is you know, also a crisis of hunger and a crisis of energy poverty and, and people being forced to live in the cold and the dark and not be able to eat. Uh, and all of this is based on choices made by the United States of America for reasons that I mean, you know, they're obvious in many ways, but that they just there's no good reason for it. I mean, the idea uh, of this new cold war is unbelievable. But you know, not to get too far afield there on the the, the general point that you're making, I think Blinken's statement was unbelievable to me. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if there's any credible commentator on China that could say anything that's changed in the past couple years on this issue uh, has been the U.S. attitude which has become significantly more belligerent. I mean, you know, it started with the Trump administration right after they came in. This is, you know, for people to remember, it feels like ages ago. But right after they came in in 2016, one of the first things they did was announce a big new package of arms for Taiwan. It was a deal that was negotiated behind closed doors with the connivance of former senator and uh, Republican presidential candidate uh, Bob Dole who was a lobbyist for Taiwan, and it was considered to be this big change in how the U.S. is approaching it. Not that they'd never sold weapons to Taiwan. I mean, they have been selling weapons to Taiwan for, you know, basically since the beginning, but that they had sold these weapons. They had sold, like, a larger amount of weapons. They'd sold some more high-powered weapons than they normally did, and it had been done very quickly without a lot of discussion. And so it just felt... Deeply provocative, and obviously Trump then went on to be very anti-China. The Biden administration has doubled down on those policies and has doubled down on its so-called strategic ambiguity, although it ain't that ambiguous at this point. Uh, not only increasing the number of weapons, but also increasing the you know the flights, the ships, all these other things in the area of the Taiwan Strait. Um, they've increased their attempt to isolate and contain China in the region with the Quad. Uh, they've also aggressively you know, promoted and tried to stoke the flames of disagreement between countries in ASEAN, the Southeast Asian countries in China, over various island chains there um, that also tend to mainly be in the South China Sea, the promotion of the the THAAD missile defense, so-called the Aegis onshore in Japan. I, I mean, really an aggressive remilitarization push. And then, yeah, you've seen all these trips. Nancy Pelosi's trip, which was highly provocative, which almost everyone said at the time, and which, by the way, according to The Economist YouGov poll, the you know plurality of Americans asked that she should not have gone. So I think even to the average everyday person, it was clear what was happening. So when you put all these things together, that is the context in which China itself has indeed increased its own military sort of posture in the region to send a message that they're not going to be intimidated. But it just has to be said here, it is totally absurd. There is zero evidentiary capacity uh, out there to prove that somehow China has quote-unquote accelerated its timetable for reunification or is looking for military reunification. China has always said on this issue, just, just so we're clear, they've always said on this issue that a unilateral declaration of independence would most likely be met with uh, you know of the conflict because they're not going to allow Taiwan, which is a part of China, to be independent. But outside of that, their policy has always been and continues to be uh, to promote peaceful reunification. What most people don't know, because they only hear it in the context of Hong Kong and Macau, is that Deng Xiaoping coined the phrase "one country, two systems" around the return of Hong Kong and Macau to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, but not really about those two territories, but about Taiwan to show that the, the Chinese leadership was was looking at the issue of reunification in a very real way, that they were not looking to, uh, you know, dictate all the things on the mainland to places like Taiwan and that you'd be able to see through the, rule of, uh, uh, through the, the writ of the PRC in Hong Kong and, and, and Macau that they were willing to do this. And I think in that context, it's notable not just to talk about Blinken's statements, but to also talk about the reaction, uh, well, Xi's statements ended up himself around Hong Kong and Macau in his speech, where he, you know, reaffirmed the Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong and Macau people ruling Macau. Uh, you know, this is sort of how it's talked about in China, the Chinese phraseology there. So it's very, very Chinese phrasing, but essentially that Hong Kong and Macau are one country, two systems; they'll govern themselves. But also adding to that, the patriots only. Uh, language that was added after the so-called Hong Kong protests, so that there's a certain level of national loyalty there. But obviously, that is a you know key message to the people of Taiwan, and I think it's you know being read very clearly that way by people who follow this issue in that part of the world that China remains committed to peaceful reunification and to a one country, two systems approach. And certainly you can see throughout the Xi presidency, his approach to Taiwan has been to increase the economic opportunity and integration of Taiwan in the mainland, to create more opportunities for Taiwan people to work on the mainland and work more easily and to invest and invest more easily uh, on the mainland to promote this very idea. So the core of China is reunification. Inside of China itself, this is a very fraught issue. People on the mainland do not want to war with Taiwan. They don't want Chinese people killing Chinese people. People in Taiwan don't want to war with China. I mean, even the people who want to, you know, secede don't really want a war, but they're willing to risk war uh, in order to do it. But the point being, there is what Blinken is saying is just fake. It's just, it's, it's 100% fake. It cannot be proven. There is nothing there. There are really no China experts, even people who hate China, who are even really arguing this. So it's just based on the fact that he knows that most Americans are 100% ignorant about all factors engaged with China, and they only hear about in the mainstream media, oh, well, China flew some planes or whatever over Taiwan, or they shot a missile, or they had some, uh, you know, ship or something like that. They don't hear that America might have had like 55 ships around there and flown multiple planes and sold them $800 million worth of weapons. And without that context, you can just sort of say whatever you want to say, but that's kind of part of the course when it comes to China. The level of ignorance that exists around the country makes it easier to say whatever you want to say and, and build up this warlike atmosphere.
0: Absolutely. We're going to squeeze in a couple of callers here. First up is Keith. Tell us what's on your mind.
7: Oh, great show. Glad to have Eugene back. I remember when he was uh, on Russian uh, radio and TV and missed him. I know he went off to pursue some other uh, interests. Real quickly, uh, Frantz Fanon, in his book, The Wretched of the Earth, said that that the divide in the less developed pre-colonial countries, former colonial countries, is between the peasants and the back elites by the West, who were former colonizers. And that uh, basically, uh, what I wanted to ask was, to what degree or how much weight would China have? I just saw that they signed a multi-billion dollar contract to export, instead of weapons, and uh, CIA cutouts, they're uh, exporting trains. They sold bullet trains to Indonesia, billions worth. And they're, all the other neighboring countries are now going to start buying these bullet trains. They're trying to create jobs, uh, promote economic growth. These types of things, I don't see the U.S. model uh, being able to uh, compete with China's model. When they come in, they build bridges, roads, tunnels, airports, infrastructure. We don't want that. We want just their raw materials. And we don't want them to grow anything or produce anything that will compete with us. So I'm just thinking uh, to what degree do you think China might be a changemaker here in the coming years ahead? All
0: right. Well, thanks so much for calling in Keith. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Next up is BJ. Tell us what's on your mind.
7: Hey, thanks so much,
8: Eugene. Um, and I love the show. Um, I'm a, a longtime listener, first time caller. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to uh, make a quick point. Um, that uh, just to concur with what Eugene had said earlier regarding, uh, he said that he didn't coin the phrase, and he wished that he could give credit to whoever did, but um, uh, that Haiti was the a great republic of NGOs. Um, I, I've uh, my, my wife and I actually met in Haiti, and uh, we spent some time there, and um, that is 100% true. Um, and the sad part about it was is that uh, we were there um, to give uh, aid, and we did great work through church and um, a lot of monies that we raised and things of that nature, but we worked with an NGO and there were NGOs everywhere. And I did not see the, we did not see the fruit of their labor. And that's one of the things that we took note of. Um, And he is a hundred percent right. And it had little to nothing to do with some of the natural disasters that um, did take place, but there were NGOs everywhere and we just did not see the fruit of the labor of that being there. So I just wanted to concur with that statement. Um, having spent some uh, quite a bit of time in Haiti, having met my wife down there, the relationship, long-lasting relationship that I have with folks, um, Haitian uh, nationals, that are to this day, and they would concur with that statement as well. So, again, thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you, BJ. Th- appreciate you calling. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Eugene, we got five minutes left in today's show, so feel free to respond to those calls as you will.
6: Yeah, no, thank you. And appreciate the calls. And Keith, great to hear your voice, as always. One of my favorite parts about coming back as a guest. Yeah, I think the U.S. cannot compete. I mean, if you think about it like this, the U.S. doesn't have one high-speed rail in America. So if you can't develop high-speed rail in your own country... And, I mean, it, it, I think it's very indicative. People should read the New York Times article from a couple of weeks ago about the California high-speed rail and how it's totally failing. It's embarrassing, and it's going to be a huge embarrassment to the U.S. at the G20 when the Jakarta demand on high-speed rail built by China is going to be revealed, and it's going to be during the G20. So Indonesia kind of making a nice little tweak in the nose there of the U.S., but I think it's a notable piece. You know, you can see Fernando Haddad, who's the Workers' Party candidate uh, uh, for Sao Paulo State in Brazil right now, running on a ticket with Lula in the debate yesterday. He said, trains are going to be my number one, uh, not debate on Twitter, uh, my number one focus. We're going to have a high-speed train, all these other things. That's going to ultimately come from China. The reality is you just have to look at Blinken's so-called trip to Africa, started in South Africa with the U.S.-South African Strategic Partnership. The U.S. and other countries have promised South Africa $8 billion for an energy transition. Absolutely none of that money has appeared, and Blinken did not announce one dollar. To be spent. He then went to the DRC, and uh, John Kerry was there also recently, and they said, please don't sell these oil blocks uh, uh, to, to these international companies for climate change. And I certainly agree that that would be the best for climate change. But the reality is, is you know, DRC's in a tough position. The country is deeply impoverished, and this is a natural resource that is worth a lot of money. Um, and rather than give them any money, they've given $54 billion to Ukraine, $19 billion in military aid alone. They couldn't give one dollar. To DRC to help address poverty alleviation, they just lectured them about what they were going to do. So the U.S. has absolutely no plan. The six hundred billion dollars to counter the Belt Road has not appeared in any way, shape, or form. The odd thing that they do build here and there, and it's usually Japan, not the U.S. or anyone in Europe that does build something, um, is 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 you know few and far between. But ultimately, development is the enemy of the West because they don't want countries to get strong. So I think not only can they not compete, they actually don't want to compete. With China, and they think that this style of development is ultimately going to be bad for imperialism and capitalism, and will create more competitors rather than more, uh, you know, that trapeze and, and, and other forms of subordinate forces that will just listen to Washington and Brussels above anything else.
0: Absolutely, and you know, a, a, a little while ago, you know, I was sort of uh, just sort of describing Blinken's uh, comments and kind of the overall uh, orientation of Washington towards. Uh, Taiwan and Ukraine and and what that means for our political moment. And uh, I think it's directly tied to uh, a capitalist system and an imperialist system emerging from that uh, that is in decline, trying desperately to hold on to power. And uh, uh, you, you described it as a bleak picture, Eugene, which it absolutely is. And it will stay that way and get worse if the ruling class, the capitalist remain in power. And if this capitalist system remains uh, the dominant force on the world stage, as I keep saying, it will, in fact, plunge us all into oblivion. So how do we keep from having that bleak future? The only way we can do that is if we Organize. If we organize the masses of poor, working, and oppressed people in this country, making links with our class around the world, then we can strike a collective blow against the systems, the institutions, and the class that are oppressing us all. And we refuse to do this at our own peril. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik can Watch DC we Want to thank you, Gene Preyer, so much for joining us today. We'll back tomorrow with an all new episode. So, as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.